Welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk to the experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with doctors, dietitians, athletes, and various fields to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps we can take in the effort to shift towards a healthier lifestyle. My name is Stephanie Nishi, and today I am joined by Dr. Sasha Coleman to talk about gut health, specifically our microbiome, food sensitivities, and much more. Dr. Sasha Coleman is originally from Toronto, Ontario, and attended McMaster University, where she obtained her Bachelor's of Science degree before moving to Arizona. In Arizona, she completed her doctorate in naturopathic medicine at Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine and stayed in the States for almost 10 years. She recently moved back home to fulfill a lifelong dream of working alongside her sister, Dr. Tanisha Mitchell Lambert, who is a family physician with an emphasis in lifestyle medicine. You may remember Dr. Tanisha from episode 38 of the Plant-Based Canada podcast. If not, check it out after this episode. Together, they work at Integrative Interactive Health in Mississauga, Ontario. Dr. Coleman was introduced to vegan and vegetarian cooking at a young age and made the decision to adopt this lifestyle for herself. Shortly after making those changes, her father became ill and began working with a naturopathic doctor. After witnessing her father's health improve by implementing a more plant-forward diet in conjunction with other naturopathic therapies, she decided to pursue naturopathy for herself. Due to her personal and professional experiences, Dr. Coleman shares that she is delighted to educate and treat people using the tools of natural medicine and dietary modification to positively impact health and overcome disease. Dr. Coleman, thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast today. So glad to be here. Thanks so much, Stephanie. It's our pleasure. To start things off, can you tell us a little bit about how you were introduced to lifestyle medicine and plant-based practices, and how did it become a part of your life and your own healthcare practice? Yeah, definitely. So it's a very cute story, I have to say, because it starts from when I was about 10 or 11 years old. Um, my mom signed me up to go to this kind of camp retreat thing that two of her girlfriends were hosting for their kids as well, who are around my age. So we pretty much all went up to somewhere in Northern Ontario, can't remember now. And we pretty much just had like a little camp out there, but they were also vegan and plant-based. And so they pretty much were just showing us how to cook vegan meals, how it could be delicious and how, you know, just a healthy lifestyle is important. Uh, we played a bunch of games while we were out there. We got to go canoeing, things like that. So it was just a fun experience. When uh, I was there, I was just kind of introduced to the fact that you can have healthy food that also tastes very good. <laughs> and so when I came back from that camp, you can call it, uh, I told my parents, hey, I don't think I want to eat meat anymore. Actually, I don't want to eat meat anymore. And nobody in my family really believed me at that time. I was just 10 or 11. You know, kids say a bunch of stuff and don't actually stick to it. But I actually did. The very next day, I think my sister shared this uh, story on the podcast before, um, was that, you know, my mom made some fried chicken the next day. And that's usually like irresistible to all of us. And I did not eat it. 
I did not have not one piece of chicken. And so from that point, my mom saw that I was pretty serious and she actually ended up joining me shortly after. So we are both now vegetarian, vegan, you know, in the household, but my dad is totally not. He was not on board with any of this really. He was like, you can go ahead and do what you want to do. I'm going to still have my meat pretty much. And so, you know, after a few years, uh, my dad actually ended up being diagnosed with colorectal cancer. That was hard for the family, but what was helpful was that, you know, my mother and I had kind of started making a lot of these dietary changes already. And so then he was definitely on board, you know, he started having much more vegetables in his diet, cut back on the animal-based proteins a whole bunch. And he also started working with a naturopath at that time. That naturopathic doctor has been practicing for decades now, Dr. Adams. He's amazing. Um, he really worked with my father through his cancer to help keep it in remission. And, you know, as a result, I was able to see firsthand what naturopathic medicine could do. And that was kind of brand new to me as well. At the time, I was probably about 14 years old, 15 years old in high school. Um, and, you know, in my mind, I had already made up what I wanted to do with my life. I was going to be either a dietitian or a nutritionist. I loved food. I loved cooking. I loved talking about food, <laughs> eating food. So it just seemed like very natural. And I, I really liked talking about the ability to make food healthy, you know, and make it good for you, but still taste really good. So that was pretty much what I was going to do. But when I found out that naturopathic medicine also encompass kind of that whole nutritional counseling aspect and talking about food and also like herbs and plants and things that I very much grew up on um, as a form of medicine. It just, it just sang to me and I was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yes. <laughs> so I was able to still hold on to my, my goal of doing nutrition and dietitian type things, um, but also layer in a bunch of other modalities, which I really loved about it. So that is kind of what started me on the journey towards becoming a naturopathic doctor. And I understand now you mentioned your sister, Dr. Tanisha, who is on episode 38, I believe, of the Plant-Based Canada podcast. And you're both, you have a healthcare practice together in Mississauga, Ontario, Integrative Interactive Health, I believe. So that's... Yes, that was always, that was always a big dream of me and my sister, uh, I went to school in the States and she also went to school in the States. And then we both have now moved back home officially. And we're now finally practicing and having that integrative practice that we always dreamed of. So it's really beautiful. It's so nice to see how things come full circle, both how your childhood influences and the family aspect as well. That's really nice to hear about. Yeah. And I understand that you, in your naturopathic practice, you have quite a bit of experience in relation to gastrointestinal health, as well as food sensitivities, among many other areas of expertise. Um, and with the growing interest in the gut microbiome and how it may affect our health, it would be great to be able to hear more about what exactly this is, how it may actually relate to our health, and what we can potentially do to optimize our health in this way. So I was wondering if you'd be open to answering some questions about this. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So um, specifically with the gut as kind of naturopathic doctors, that's one of our fundamentals. Like we always like to address the gut first because from it springs so many 
other issues, you know, um, it kind of affects all the other organ systems that we have. So if we can really heal up and make sure that that uh, microbiome, that environment is healthy and supported, um, we see so many different chronic conditions fall away and improve and get so much better. So that's why, you know, that's one of the first places I always like to start. Even if you don't necessarily have digestive complaints, maybe you have issues with your skin, like acne, maybe you're experiencing things like brain fog, you know, it, it shows up in so many different ways that we have to address the gut usually to some extent. Mm-hmm. And I've heard other people talk about the gut being the forgotten organ. And what exactly is it when you talk about the gut? What are you referring to? And um, you mentioned many different health conditions associated with it. But what exactly is our gut? Yeah, it's kind of it's that whole digestive tract going from, you know, your stomach and how well it's able to break down your food initially and get the nutrients from it um, as it goes and passes through the intestines and also like your colon. That's really huge because that's where the majority of our microbiome is. The majority of our immune system, therefore, is also there. And, you know, it's kind of like forgotten in that the gut actually is where the majority of like your neurotransmitters actually are like 92% or something of your neurotransmitters are actually in your gut. So that's why I always like to tell patients, it's kind of like your second brain. So if you're having, you know, mental, emotional issues, or as I said before, brain fog, things that are related to cognition, um, or your mood, you have to also address the gut, not just thinking that it's, you know, completely psych-related. Sometimes it's also something physiological that we have to address as well. The other thing I said, the immune system, huge amount of your, your immune system lies in the gut and also hormone modulation. So women that have different conditions like uh, PCOS that have um, issues with their menstrual cycle, you know, a lot of people come to naturopaths for different options because, um, you know, they're on like the pill, for example, and their hormones are not regulated still and their periods are still uh, not regulated well. So sometimes we have to actually address the gut and those organs of elimination to help with removal of the excess hormones that need to get circulated out so that we don't have excesses of them, of things, for example, like estrogens. Uh, So, you know, that's all, it's all interconnected. And so just kind of drawing the picture of how each organ system plays with each other is something I always like to talk about with patients. So it sounds like when we think about the gut, it's not just our stomach and intestine and what happens to our food. It's everything from our mouth all the way through, and it can impact all other organ systems. And you you mentioned something else that really brought to mind something that's been a so-called hot topic, it seems, both in science and in health, and that was the microbiome. Mm -hmm. Now, why has the microbiome become such a hot topic? And is it something that we should be giving more attention to? Definitely. I think that it's because they're realizing how much certain bacteria have a role in um, the actual like absorption of certain nutrients, the actual function of certain neurotransmitters, um, like, you know, our serotonin and our dopamine levels. So, you know, we're seeing things like, you know, digestive issues come up a lot more, but also a lot of 
psychological issues come up more. There's more things like depression and things that are kind of affecting us in ways that we don't realize. And so the microbiome is actually kind of the root of where where everything is, is stemming from. It seems like there's so much, not only interest in the microbiome, but products coming out that are saying supports a healthy microbiome or gut microbiota. Um, mm-hmm. So how do we go about navigating this? What are some things that you would maybe discuss with your patients or clients if you do discuss this with your patients or clients? There are certain strains of bacteria that are really helpful for certain conditions. So for example, when I have someone with IBS, there are certain strains of bacteria that are very specific to helping with that. Or if someone has, you know, uh, chronic constipation, there are certain strains that are very helpful for that. Um, there are certain lines of probiotics that I really like because they do a lot of research in the back backing of, you know, what it's actually addressing, those microbiomes. And also you have to look about how much you're getting. Um, for people that have had very chronic conditions that have been going on for a long time, you usually have to start with a higher amount of CFUs or, you know, the amount of bacteria in that uh, capsule. Um, as opposed to something that may just have be happening acutely or just came up shortly. Um, so I'll usually start people at a higher dose if they've had something that's very ongoing and then wean their dose down to something more manageable and more of a maintenance type of general, you know, really good bacterial environment microbiome support. So Okay, so it sounds like these are speaking to actual probiotics, which are providing the uh, quote unquote healthy bacteria to the body. And then there's also um, things called prebiotics, which my understanding it's more from the food side of things. Can you speak a little bit to that? And if that's something that should be on people's radars? And if so, what sort of things could be considered a prebiotic? Yeah, so there are a lot of formulations that have the prebiotic included with the probiotic and the prebiotic is just like the food for the probiotic. So usually that's from different fiber sources. For some people, I've seen that be very helpful to do the combination. But for some, I've actually seen um, the symptoms a little bit worsened with the prebiotic probiotic mix. So you kind of have to take it on a case by case basis. Um, For some people, it actually causes a little extra gas and bloating and things like that. So it's better to just stick with the probiotic. But yeah, usually in general, if it's well tolerated, I do like a prebiotic and probiotic mix because it, it really helps to boost that environment. You touched on a couple of things there. The first one being, while there's so much potential information out there, it's really good to consider things individually and on a case-by-case basis, as you Mm -hmm. mentioned. Um, And you also mentioned fiber, which at least depending on the type of plant-based diet you're following, this can be something that is consumed at maybe higher levels than the general population. And this can potentially act as a prebiotic, but can also lead to those symptoms such as the gas and the bloating. So what are your thoughts on that? And what sort of evidence have you seen for a vegetarian or plant-based dietary pattern with increasing fiber and their prebiotic effect? Mm -hmm, Definitely. So with the fiber, um, I always kind of like to ask, you know, 
how much vegetables are you usually getting per serving or per day, things like that. And then also kind of what are the effects afterwards? So for some people, those really high fiber foods or only certain high fiber foods will really cause a lot of symptoms for them. So for some people, it's the issue with beans. Like that's a very common one. You know, um, people have a lot of gas or things like that. But I'll suggest different cooking methods, like making sure that they soak their beans for a really long time and, you know, discard that first water, recook it then, um, or sprouting the beans even first before to help relieve some of that symptom of gas that a lot of people experience. So, you know, if that's still an issue, then there's also digestive supplement support that we can give them to help with the digestion of certain like high fiber foods. And so, you know, after doing that, it's usually, usually very effective. If that's still an issue for people, I usually like to just kind of tell them to try different types of plant-based proteins that can be a good alternative where they're still getting their protein, but still not getting those symptoms um, because it is very much case by case. It's very individualized. At the end of the day, it's still better to have fiber than to not because we need fiber in our diet at the end of the day to help with especially the colon and making sure that it stays you know, clean and healthy. And so just those easier fibers, those easier soluble fibers are what I usually go to if people have a lot of issues with digestion. Is there a certain time frame that you would um, wait until you recommend making a change or adjusting things based on these symptoms? Yeah. So sometimes what I'll do with patients is called a 21-day cleanse. And so with that, I'll actually do like an elimination diet. And with that, we usually take away most of the pro-inflammatory foods. Um, sometimes some of those high fiber foods are may possibly be included, but usually not. And usually people are fine during the 21 days when they eliminate the real, the usual highly inflammatory foods. And after that, we kind of see and reintroduce each food very slowly to see what may be really causing their symptoms. Because the thing with inflammation is that it can be something that's either that you've had recently or even up to three days ago that's really causing your symptoms and you just haven't been able to pinpoint it or target it. And so that's the beauty of doing that, a 21-day cleanse. And with this uh, 21 days, you mentioned inflammation. Now, why is inflammation a concern? And um, what are some ways that we can address inflammation. Yeah, inflammation is another big, broad thing that is kind of affected in a lot of different chronic conditions. And so, you know, it's it's important to find out what's causing inflammation for your body specifically. One of the, some of the main things that do cause inflammation is meat, just animal protein in a whole, you know, from red meat to processed meat to especially certain certain fish even, are actually pro-inflammatory and they're causing a lot of the different chronic conditions that we're seeing. And one of the main things that we take out in the 21 day cleanse is animal-based proteins. We also eliminate like sugar, trans fats, certain um, soy, like I usually tell people to stay away from um, non-non-non-GMO soy, soy that is non-GMO. <laughs> and um yeah, so some of some of the main pro-inflammatory foods, we eliminate those for 21 days. 
And then we often will see a lot of their symptoms kind of resolve. And when they do bring back that food, like let's say if they were having meat three times a day, you know, once they start having it once, sometimes their their symptoms will come right back. It sounds like it goes in line with, I'm not sure how evidence-based this statement is, but it takes 21 days to form a habit. So mm-hmm. it sounds like it's transitioning individuals to just consume more whole fruits and vegetables and whole grain type foods during that time period. Exactly, exactly. So it's it's kind of, it. that is kind of what the, the saying is, that it takes about 21 days to either form a habit or, you know, change your taste buds and things like that. So within the 21 days, usually also what's happened is your body has had the opportunity to get rid of a lot of the inf- excess inflammation that's been in all of the different areas that are being affected, any organs that are being affected. And it gives the body time to actually eliminate a lot of those inflammatory markers. So that's kind of the science behind it. So it sounds like this may be related to foods that the body may be not tolerating as well as other foods. And I know that you have, um, you've done counseling in relation to food sensitivity and food sensitivity testing. I was wondering if you could speak to and describe what exactly is food sensitivity testing. So um, that is a a special blood test that you can get done. And pretty much they are testing your immunoglobulin G. Immunoglobulin G is a, a immune marker that is elevated when certain uh, inflammatory processes happen. What's often talked about is IgE, which is another immune marker, which is usually um, associated with an allergic response that happens very immediately. So that's where you have, you know, the swelling of your throat or itchy throat and you can't breathe, usually to things, things like peanuts and whatnot. So This reaction, though, the IgG reaction is different in that it is more latent or it takes a little bit longer to show up. Um, As I said, sometimes we're not associating inflammation with certain foods that we may have had up to three days ago, but that's kind of what this test is looking at. It's looking at those foods that, you know, are causing kind of that low level inflammation that really uh, affects different organ systems through the body as a result, usually of leaky gut. And I know that's another big topic that people always are talking about these days. With leaky gut, we often will see that, you know, that breakdown in that, that intestinal barrier. And so what, what the main thing I'm trying to do is usually is help with the repair of that intestinal lining, as well as, you know, helping to support that microbiome again, uh, and making sure that our food stays where it's supposed to um, within the intestines and we're actually getting the nutrients we need from it so that we can see those types of those inflammatory conditions really decrease. So with this leaky gut, what are some of the signs that somebody may be experiencing this or what are some things that people should be aware of if this may be occurring? So with leaky gut, um, it will often come up as some sometimes like digestive issues, you know, gas or bloating, for some people constipation, diarrhea. Um, But if it, you know, affects other systems, it can come up as things like acne or eczema. Um, As I said before, the brain fog, it can 
affect, you know, the liver. Um, I've seen people with uh, gallstones and gallbladder issues. So, you know, it can essentially, what's happening once it, once the inflammation affects the other organ systems, it embeds in that tissue and causes inflammation in that tissue, which then leads to these chronic conditions. Mm -hmm. If someone thinks that they may either have a food sensitivity or allergy or leaky gut, what should they do and how would you approach it or how would you ask them to approach it before they come to see you? And then once they come to see you, what are some of the strategies in place? Yeah, it's always good to kind of try some food elimination on your own. Like there are some of the main uh main foods that usually cause a lot of inflammation, like gluten, for example, you can always try to eliminate that for a time or, you know, eliminating meat for a time. And if you're kind of coming to me with that foreknowledge, like, hey, I think that gluten may be one of those things, we can go ahead and run that test. And most often, more often than not, we'll usually see either gluten or wheat uh, come up on that food sensitivity test. And what it does is it actually tests like 180 plus different foods specifically for you um, from that one blood test. And it comes back and tells you exactly which foods are causing really an elevated response, which are causing a borderline response, which is just kind of medium level, and then which foods are still normal for you causing not, not causing any inflammation. And so with that information, we're able to do that like very specific elimination of, you know, this specific food, this specific food, and see if that can help to turn around what's going on with them. And then, as I said before, usual support is things like probiotics, things that are going to help to um, repair the intestinal lining, like certain amino acids, which are really helpful with that. If people need, you know, digestive support like enzymes, we may do that. Um, and then I also, you know, integrate my other forms of medicine, like botanical medicine. We may get some teas in there uh, that are helpful with, you know, helping with digestion. And so, yeah, we kind of go from there usually. Nutrition is usually the first place that I like to start with patients. So kind of what is your diet like? What are you eating on a regular basis? Take a look at your diet diary. And that's usually how we start off. I'm biased towards nutrition as a dietitian myself. Um, <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> and I feel that's one way that people can feel like they're in control more so yeah. of the situation. Exactly. Yes. And you mentioned with this sensitivity testing, there's over a hundred foods that are tested at a time, which to me sounds like quite a lot. And what happens if the test comes back and there's multiple foods that are triggering this food sensitivity? Do you adjust them all at once or is that too challenging to do all at once? How do you approach that? It's It really depends on honestly, the motivation of the patient, as well as, you know, what I think is going to be realistic going forward. What I like to do is get rid of the main ones that are, you know, very common inflammatory foods. So, you know, like the meat, the gluten, oftentimes soy, um, and sometimes corn. Those are some of the main ones that I see on a lot of food sensitivity tests and eggs, eggs as well. And so we're definitely, if those come up as either elevated or borderline for you, those are most likely going to go first. And then if the person can do more, 
you know, I will say, hey, if you can really get rid of all of these elevated foods, and if you feel motivated enough to get rid of the borderline foods right now, let's do it. And let's have a really, really strict hypoallergenic <laughs> diet and have a really hypoallergenic diet for the next few weeks, then we can do that. And I always like to give them really good ideas of different things that you can try to integrate because there's tons of other grains that you can have besides, you know, if, if rice comes up on your panel, you can have quinoa, you can have kamut, you can have, you know, a bunch of different things. Um, and just kind of give them ideas as of ways we can switch up their diet and still make it, you know, manageable and pleasant. <laughs> so that's usually what I'll do with people with the food sensitivity testing. Um, but I work with them kind of slowly. If they need to go slow, we'll go slow, you know. It sounds like you meet the individual where they are and you work with them based on their needs and where their mindset is at as well, it sounds like. Exactly, exactly. Um, one, of the, one of the most difficult things is if someone comes back with like pretty much all the different animal proteins and there's someone that eats meat, you know, three times a day, that discussion, uh, I kind of try and meet them in the middle very much in that, you know, I'll say, okay, can we cut it down to once a day? Can we cut it down now to like two or three times a week? All right, great. Now you've fallen in love with all these different plant-based alternatives. Do you think that you even need it in your diet? And like, that's how we can really slowly get them to that place that I think is usually optimal for most people. So and aside from diet, are there other lifestyle-related strategies or factors that can be integrated into our daily activities that may improve our gut microbiota or overall health from your perspective? For sure. Um, the next big thing that I like to talk about with people is always sleep. I think sleep is a huge, huge issue in our society today. And the link between how well we sleep, the time that we sleep, um, the quality of our sleep really affects, um, you know, our overall health. Uh, you know, everyone talks about circadian rhythms, but uh, I did a presentation on sleep a few months back that kind of talked about how the body produces certain even enzymes and certain neurotransmitters optimally at certain times of the day as a part of our circadian rhythms. And so when we aren't, you know, matching up with that or falling in line with that, then, you know, that's when we see us, we're tired and we're sluggish and we see issues with our blood sugar regulation and issues with like obesity and things like that because we oftentimes are not sleeping and eating at the times that we should be. And so sleep and our diet, I feel like go hand in hand a lot. So that's why a lot of times I talk about um, like intermittent fasting with people. That's a huge thing just it all goes along with those, those circadian rhythms so and I was listening to another presentation that you gave a little while back that not only talked about your circadian rhythms and your day-to-day -day patterns but also you briefly noted this just a moment ago but our meal timing throughout the day um, yeah. you said that that also could have an impact on our microbiota and our other potential health situation. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on that for us? The body actually produces the most digestive enzymes earlier in the day. So like in the morning, 
That's why oftentimes we always are stressing, you know, don't skip breakfast or have a good amount of, have a, a larger meal for breakfast or in the early afternoon type of thing. And, you know, finish eating a little earlier in the day as opposed to late at night. So I always try and counsel people to, you know, make sure you have breakfast, definitely in the morning or something, because that's when you'll have the most nutrient absorption because you have the most digestive enzymes to help with that at that time of day. So, you know, it all it all has to kind of work out in a certain time frame um, to really optimal health. Feel like there's so many different factors to consider. It's not just what we put into our bodies, but there's、right. so much research out there telling us all these other aspects that can potentially have an impact as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I was wondering if are there any other points or evidence regarding the gut microbiome or food sensitivities or factors related to your practice that you think are relevant and would be of Interest that we haven't discussed yet, but that you think would be important for our listeners to hear. One of the main、um, groups of people that I really like to work with in regards to like food sensitivity testing、um, and making sure that the gut microbiome is、uh, healthy is people with autoimmune conditions because it's really a huge issue for them, especially. It's kind of where you know this excess inflammation. Meets often a lot of gastrointestinal issues. So autoimmune conditions such as celiacs or、um, inflammatory bowel disease, or sorry, irritable bowel disease, inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. Those are all things that I think of could really be helped by、uh, addressing food sensitivities in particular. And you know, I've seen where a plant-based diet can be. Extremely, extremely helpful for these people.、Um, I had one patient with rheumatoid arthritis who really, really、um, was strict with their elimination, and was able to come off of pretty much all of their medications except a very, very minimal dose of like methotrexate, and that for a lot of people is a huge, huge accomplishment,、um, especially with chronic like conditions like that. So. Uh, you know, for her, seeing the change with just eliminating meat, especially from her diet,、um, and really integrating more plant sources that were really anti-inflammatory and giving the antioxidants that you need, and、uh, really helpful for the gut microbiome, was really really helpful for her. And she was able to absorb the nutrients from her food better once she got down a lot of that inflammation. And so those are just kind of like the fundamental things that will help turn around disease. And I think that's kind of my biggest takeaway with with those topics that I've seen a big improvement with. It's always so heartwarming to hear success stories and where、um, people have been able to have an improvement in their health and therefore overall quality of life as a result of it.、Yeah. And you mentioned that you work with individuals with autoimmune disease. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe other types of clients that you typically work with? Yeah, so、um, I do a lot of different digestive conditions like cholecystitis,、uh, gallbladder issues, liver issues, and really making sure that the organs of elimination are healthy. I did a lot of environmental medicine in school, and so. Making sure, like the colon, the、um, urinary tract, 
kidneys are all very healthy, really can help with a lot of people with their detoxification. Um, Because a lot of times things are stored in the fat that can be an issue and female conditions. That's the other big one. Uh, Things like PCOS, endometriosis, um, again, how the hormones, how our gut function is all linked, things like that. I see a lot of those types of patients. Mm -hmm. And just for reference, PCOS refers to polycystic ovary syndrome. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned that you have this clinic with your sister. Would you like to share where people may be able to find out more about you and your work? Um, So our website is um, www.i2healthclinic.com. We also have an Instagram page and you can follow us at i2health. We do a lot of different activities on there, like uh, Transformation Thursday, where we do a little workout with our patients on Instagram Live. Uh, Then we also have a Facebook page, again, at i2health. And um, any of my previous talks are also up on YouTube at i2health. So you can follow us all those places. Fantastic. And you're very active on social media, you and your team. So it's always great to see. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And do you have a final take-home message for our listeners? I just wanted to really share about how, you know, a plant-based approach really changed and impacted my life. And I really try and kind of, infuse that to my patients and really encourage them in a way that lets them know that this can be delicious, this can be healthy, it can help to change whatever's going on in your life as far as you know any conditions you have going on and overall just really make you feel uh, more vital. Uh, that was the main thing that I could really tell when I initially started this journey was that I felt different. I had a different mentality about things um, and it just, it really impacted my life for the better. So try and share that with my patients. Dr. Coleman, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and for sharing your insights. It's greatly appreciated. No problem. Thanks so much, Stephanie. This episode was hosted by myself, Stephanie Nishi, and Clinton Stamatovich is our audio engineer. This podcast featured royalty-free music from freesound.com. A very special thanks to our guest, Dr. Sasha Coleman, for speaking with us and sharing her insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate health professionals and the public on the evidence behind plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website at www.plantbasedcanada.org and stay up to date by following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org. Until next time!